And so I'd like to just go ahead and begin by reading our text, and then we'll commit this time again to the Lord in prayer. So if you would follow along with me as I read there, beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. God, we worship you this morning in spirit and truth, because you are creator God. You are good in all that you do. And Lord, as we come before your word this morning, we confess our need for you desperately, that you would help us to understand your word rightly, to apply it to our lives, to live for you in this fallen world. So God, we again pray this morning for your help, that you would help us as we sit under your word in these moments, that you would make us more into the image of your son, that you would convict us of sin, that we would turn away from created things, and we would look again anew to Christ and Christ alone today. Lord, bless these moments. Work in our midst, we pray. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable before you. And it's in your Son's holy name that I pray. Amen. I wonder if you can relate uh, with me in finding it hard to communicate the depravity that surrounds us in our day. Um, I find myself using words like crazy and insane and, and weird. We live in weird times. But as we consider the depravity around us and we consider what the Word of God says, it should not be a surprise to us that a lost and dying world is depraved. This is the natural progression of corruption that originates from rejecting the God of the garden. And so whether it's the time of the flood or the time of Sodom and Gomorrah or whether it is our day, this is what we see that rejecting the goodness of God that is displayed at creation leads to corruption. We see this here through the efforts of the adversary, the serpent. And so I want us to consider how it is that we can reject the goodness of God that's displayed at creation as we look at the efforts of the serpent and how the woman and the man interact with him. So first, 
We reject the goodness of God when we question God's good word. In chapters 1 and 2, we have seen and talked about and affirmed the life-giving power of God's word, that the word of God is good. Last week, we affirmed the goodness of his command that is found in verses 16 and 17. And we said that God knows what is best for us. His word and his command and his law is good. And here in chapter 3, what we have said is good and right in the works of God at creation is brought into question by an adversary. We're introduced here in chapter 3, verse 1, to a serpent. Now, Uh, The writer here in verse 1 doesn't go too much into detail about who the serpent is and what he is. He's not as interested in the origin and nature of the snake. We'll touch on that next week more when we get to the second half of chapter 3. But notice some things that he does say here about the serpent. He says that uh, this serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. He is shrewd is another way we could translate that. This word crafty is not always used in a negative sense in the Old Testament. It's oftentimes just referring to the skillfulness of someone. But most definitely, the serpent's skillfulness here is used for evil. It tells us that he was made by God. He's a beast of the field. But again, the writer's not as interested in the origin and the nature of the snake as he is concerned with what the snake has to say. And so what does the snake say? Well, you see it there in verse 1. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He is raising a question about the command that God gave back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And he's challenging the woman to consider, should God be trusted and obeyed? Can you really trust and obey this God? He's trying to establish doubt about the word of God, the command of God that was given previously. The woman's response then is quite telling of her grasp of the command, her grasp of God's word. There's three different ways here that the woman communicates about the command, but she doesn't do it very well. Look back at chapter 2, verse 16. At the very beginning of the command, it said, God said, you may surely eat of every tree. You may freely eat, your translation might say. But if you look at chapter 3, verse 2, the woman just simply said, we may eat. If you look at verses 16 and 17 in chapter 2, there's nothing mentioned about touching the tree or the fruit. And yet, in verse 3, the woman says, neither shall you touch it. She adds an exclusion to the command. She's creating a law for herself out of a sense of exaggeration, much like a child whose father says to them, you know, don't don't touch the cookie jar. When he has his friends over to emphasize the importance of not touching the cookie jar, the the child might say to his friend, my dad says not even to look at the cookie jar. It's very much what we see here. In verse 17 of chapter 2, The result of disobedience to the command is that you shall surely die. There is a certainty to this, this covenant of works. If you disobey, you will die. But notice what the woman says in chapter 3, verse 3. She says, lest you die. Her response to the snake lacks the certainty of this penalty of death. 
And so we're reminded in just these first three verses of the importance of knowing the word of God rightly. There are many who know the word of God. Satan himself, here in the text, knows the word of God. If you've interacted with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons in your past, you know that they know the word of God. But do you know the word of God rightly? In a day where the church is under attack from false teaching and false doctrine, we must be on guard against such things and stand firm in what is true and right according to the word of God alone. In the early 2000s, there was a book that was written that would become one of the best-selling Christian books of all time. And this book was written about an obscure prayer in 1 Corinthians 4.10, a prayer by a man named Jabez. Uh, right in there in First Chronicles, I mean, not First Corinthians, First Chronicles 4.10, the writer's giving a genealogy, and he pauses to tell us about the prayer of Jabez. And in this book, the writer's um, thesis, the conclusion that he comes to is that if you pray this prayer, you will be blessed with health, wealth, and prosperity. And what's difficult about this book is that it's sold in Christian bookstores. It's labeled as Christian. The writer's using the Bible. And if you read the book, the writer does a pretty decent job of exposition of 1 Chronicles 4.10. And yet the conclusion that he comes to practically sounds more like New Age belief and Buddhism than it sounds like Christian doctrine. The prayer of Jabez there in First Chronicles is simply there to teach us that God hears the prayers of his people when they pray according to his will. And so we're reminded here in this illustration to be on guard against false teaching and false doctrine. In Matthew 7, 15, Jesus said, beware of false prophets. And so if we deny that there are false prophets and false teachers and false doctrines in our day, we deny the words of Christ himself and the apostles who warned us against false teachers. Jesus goes on to say there in Matthew 7, 15, that these false prophets come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. False teaching doesn't come to us labeled as such. It comes from a man in a suit and a tie standing behind a pulpit who's attempting to look at the Word of God in a building called a church. It's subtle. It's laden with half-truths where the scriptures are here and there, and we must be on guard. We must know the Word of God rightly. We do this by first being students of God's Word in our daily lives. Read the word, meditate on the word, memorize the word of God. One of the great joys of being your pastor in just these four months is to learn and see how so many of you saturate your days with the word of God. May we continue to encourage one another to do the same. As we seek to know the word rightly, we need to sit under preaching that rightly divides the word of God. When we come to the time of preaching and we look at words and grammar and sentence structure and the context and the setting in which it was written and the intent of the writer 
according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we aren't doing those things just to build head knowledge. We're doing those things to rightly understand what the Word of God has to say. What does the text mean, and then how do we apply it to our lives? This is good and right. And, and as a preacher, I feel the tension and the pressure from an outside world that looks in on this 40 minutes that we give ourselves to each week to sit under the preaching of the word, and the outside world says, that's kind of weird. Why do you guys go and sit in that building and listen to that bald guy talk for so long? And academia says things like, you know, if you don't have a fancy outline and a catchy video to show, and if you don't keep it under 10 minutes, you won't keep the people's attention. The preacher doesn't need to get caught up in the noise from the outside world and academia. The, the power that the preacher rests in is not in a cool video or a catchy phrase that catches the attention, the power that the preacher rests in is the word of God before him and the spirit of God within him. There is something miraculous that is happening in this place week in and week out when we gather to sit under the preaching of the word, and it's not because of anything cool or fancy that I'm doing. I remember as a six-year-old boy, some of my earliest memories is sitting in a pew in a church in Fort Worth, Texas, listening to Dr. Michael Dean faithfully preach the word week in and week out. And he wasn't the most gifted speaker. And he was tall and lanky and kind of awkward. But that man faithfully preached the word week in and week out. And as a six-year-old boy, I could not tell you what the outline of the sermon was. I could not tell you what the main idea of the sermon was. I could not, at the end of the service, give you my theological thesis on the text. But I can tell you as a six-year-old boy, as I sat under the faithful preaching of the Word of God, that the Spirit of God moved in my life. And God was sanctifying me and convicting me of sin and drawing me more to himself to be more like Jesus because a man faithfully preached the Word. So may we sit under sound biblical preaching. But also, let me encourage you with this, that we would also know what sound doctrine is. I am sympathetic and appreciate uh, when people say to me, you know, pastor, I really don't like to get into theology. I don't like to talk about theology or doctrine. I don't like to get into the controversy. I just want to know Jesus and proclaim his gospel, and I appreciate that more than you know. I think for many of us, we could use more of that in our mindset. But I want to encourage you with this this morning, that doctrine and theology are good. One of the great graces that God has shown his church throughout its history is creeds and confessions and statements of faith. Where the saints who have come before us stand on the word of God and they charge us to believe good doctrine with their creeds and their confessions. You think about the essentials that we affirm today. Something like Jesus is fully God and fully man. This is a battle that the church fought in its early days, and they stood on it, and they, they declared it to be true, and we still stand on that today. Don't be afraid of doctrine. Don't be afraid to learn about what good theology looks like and to identify what bad doctrine looks like, especially in our day. I want you to consider something with me. Every single person on the face of this earth right now is a theologian. 
Uh, That word theology just means the study of God. Everybody on planet Earth right now has thoughts on God, even the atheist. So the question this morning is not whether or not you are a theologian. The question is, are you a good theologian? Do you know the word of God? Do you swim in the word of God? Are you rooted and grounded in the solid, sound, biblical, Christ-exalting doctrine of the Bible? We need to know the word rightly. So the first thing that we see here in rejecting the goodness of God is by questioning God's good word. Secondly, though, we reject the goodness of God when we doubt God's good nature. We primarily see this in verses 4 and 5. Uh, The question of the command in uh, verse 1 shifts to a deliberate denial of the consequence of that command in verses 4 and 5. The serpent denies God's word that you will not surely die is what the serpent says. Interestingly, the serpent gets the command uh, more accurate than Eve does. Back in verse 16 of chapter 2, God said you, uh, or sorry, verse 17, you will surely die. The serpent here says you will not surely die. He denies it, but he gets the command somewhat right as he denies the penalty of death. Satan knows the word of God and can use it to manipulate and deceive. And his manipulation here of the command is that there is no punishment for your disobedience to a holy creator God. And this lie has taken hold of humans throughout history, that we are not accountable for our sin. But as we talked about last week, this is true. Disobedience to God brings death. And a rejection of this basic Christian doctrine sets a person on a path toward the very thing they deny, which is eternal death. This is why it's so important when we share the gospel that we begin with this. Death and sin and the punishment that comes for those who are left in that sinful state and eternal separation from God in hell. How can someone know of their need for a savior if they do not first know of their state as a sinner? But not only does the serpent deny the word of God, he brings into question God's nature, his motives, and his integrity. Last week, we affirmed, through the command and the establishment of gender and man and woman and marriage and all of these things, that God knows what is best for us. And here the serpent says to the woman, does he really? Does God really know what's best for you? This is still a tactic of Satan in our day. Shouldn't shouldn't you be the one who determines what is best for you? And we hear this in the mantras of our day. My body, my choice. This is my truth. Follow your heart. But in verse 5, the serpent is bringing into question who God is. And he's making the woman begin to think about this idea that maybe God is keeping something from you that's better. Notice what he says there. He says, you will look, you will be like God. Now, in saying this, there is an understanding that the woman and the man have that they are created beings who have been created by a creator, God. And Satan begins to tempt them to think that they can be like him. This is the heart of the sin problem, that we want to be like God. We have forgotten what we saw in chapter 2, that we are just living creatures. We are of the dust of the ground, and yet we have this desire to be like God. 
We'll see this later at the Tower of Babel where the people say, let us make a name for ourselves. And then the serpent goes further and says, if you eat of this fruit, you can know what is good and evil. And what is ironic about this is that Adam and Eve are living in a paradise. All that they have is good. They're living in a place that God called good. They've been given a command that is good, but now they're being told that there's something better that God is withholding from them, the potential of knowing more. Is God true? Can he be trusted? Should you really worship and obey him? Uh, Morgan and I, we like to watch uh, crime shows, the real-life investigative crime shows where they talk about real crime and things that have happened in this world. Uh, Morgan likes it more so than I do. Um, but if you've ever watched one of those shows, you, you've heard a phrase, I think, very frequently, and we kind of nudge each other when we hear it because you, you usually hear it inside the show, and it goes like this. Someone will say, I know that person. They could never do that. Whether it's a brother or a friend they want to give them the benefit of the doubt, and yet we see here in the text that, that, that our nature is prone to fall, and even people with the best intentions can do heinous and wicked things. But when we look to God in all of his goodness and his glory and his majesty as the creator and sustainer of all things, we see that he is good in all that he does. Humans will let us down, man will fail us, but God is good in all that he does. His good nature then is manifested in the goodness of his law. The law that we saw in verses 16 and 17 that promised Adam with life if he simply obeyed God. And when we know that his law is good because he is good, we will find joy living in obedience to Christ. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, the writer says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. If we love God, we will keep his commandments. And he goes on to say this, And his commandments are not burdensome. And this is how we tend to look at the law of God, that it's a burden upon us. But I would encourage you later today to go read Psalm 119 and see how the writer delights in and loves and finds joy in the laws of God. For the outside world looking in, they see the Bible as a list of rules, and to them it is most definitely burdensome. But for those of us who are in Christ, we see the law of God as good. And we joyfully obey our master because it is good and right. And he is good. And he knows what is best for us. And so as we think of the roles of husband and wife, and the world around us is communicating something to us that is in complete contradiction to the word of God, husbands joyfully love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives joyfully Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. It's not a burden. It's full of joy. Kids who are here today, children, if you've put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you are a follower of Jesus, don't be shocked, kids, when you obey your parents and you're overwhelmed with happiness and joy. That's Christ in you. So secondly, we reject the goodness of God when we doubt God's good nature. But finally, we reject the goodness of God when we dabble with sin. 
We see this in the last two verses, verses 6 and 7. And we see the woman in response to this conversation she's been in with the serpent, longing over and lingering over this fruit that God told her not to eat of. And as she lingers over the fruit, we see three attractions of sin. You see it there in verse 6. She saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. First, it was practical for her. It was good for food. She's thinking to herself, well, it's edible. It can't be that bad. Why would God create something to eat only to then not allow me to eat it. The idea of eat, drink, and be merry for the tomorrow we die, it feels good, it exists, so why not enjoy it? We see that the the fruit is aesthetically beautiful, that it's a delight to the eyes. We also see that it's potentially rewarding. It's to be desired to make one wise. Interestingly, these two words, delight and desirable, are very similar words to the word covet in the Ten Commandments. And so essentially what the woman is doing is she's standing at the tree and she's coveting the fruit. She's desiring it. She's lingering over this temptation. And what's usually followed by coveting? Well, it's followed by taking the thing that you're dwelling on. And we see that happen here in the text. And the writer shows us very deliberately how quickly this happens. We see this in four verbs that the writer gives us there very rapidly. Look there at the text. It says, she took, she ate, she gave, and he ate. The lie that something better is to be found apart from God had taken hold of her, and the fall happens suddenly. Remember, we are prone to wander. Adam, though, he finally comes into the scene there at the end of verse 6, and he doesn't need to be swayed by clever words by the serpent. He just willfully follows in line. He falls in line with the woman and he eats of the fruit. We are prone to do what everybody else does around us instead of submitting ourselves to the laws of God. And so what is the result of eating the fruit? We'll look more at the consequences next week, but look at the immediate result. It says their eyes were opened. They were living in paradise, but now their eyes were tainted by evil. It says that they knew that they were naked. Look back at verse 25 at chapter 2. We read this last week. We didn't touch on it much. But in verse 25 of chapter 2, it said the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so in the covenant of works, while they are still living in obedience to God, there is no immediate threat of punishment or death. They are living perfectly in fellowship with God in his presence. So they're not ashamed. And so what the writer is communicating here is not so much that they are aware of their physical state, but rather they realize now that they've come under the judgment of God. They have broken the covenant of works and the threat of his judgment is imminent. And so what do they do? They quite literally try to cover up their sins, right? They take leaves and they put together a garment to cover up their sins. I'm not a cat person in the least. I'm a dog person. Dogs are simple. 
They're kind of dumb, but you don't really have to think about what a dog is thinking and doing. I love dogs. We have a dog. Many of you have dogs. If you've ever been around a dog who's being disobedient, maybe they're chewing on the leg of some furniture and their master corrects them, stop. The dog will stop for a moment. He'll perk up. He'll remove himself from the situation. But what does the dog do over the next couple moments? He puts his paw next to the furniture. He lays his head next to the paw all the while he's looking at you. He licks his paw, and then he starts to lick the furniture, and then he starts to bite on the furniture. The dog tries to see how close he can get to the line of sin without going over. And unfortunately, this is how many Christians live the Christian life today. How close can I get to sin without crossing the line? Whether it's a pre-married couple who wants to know how much they can live in intimacy with each other without crossing over the line. Or maybe it's the man standing at the checkout at Walmart lingering over the magazine counter. Or or kids, maybe your parents give you 20 minutes of screen time, and at the end of that time, mom and dad aren't around, so five more minutes won't hurt. How close can I get to the line of sin? But rather, we should ask the question, how can I live in holiness before a holy creator God? Again, be on guard. Don't dwell on and linger over sin. Flee from temptation. Kill sin. Abide in Christ. Abide in his word. Let his spirit live through you and in you. Where the temptation comes, set it aside. Throw it away. Cast it to the side. Set your eyes on your master. And so we see here in this story of the fall, That rejecting the goodness of God leads to corruption. And really, this is a sad story. If you consider what we looked at in chapter 1 and 2 and the glory of creation and the goodness of God and his commandments and Adam and Eve being able to live and serve and obey and worship God in this paradise, all comes crashing down in a moment. And as we consider it at the top of this sermon, the depravity of our world, it is easy for us to fall into a state of depression and say like the prophet Elijah, I'm the only one left. And yet there is hope this morning. There's hope in the promise of redemption that will come in the verses that we will look at following uh, verses 1 through 7 in the coming weeks. There is redemption to come. There is hope to come. And as the people of the Old Testament looked forward in faith to a Savior to come, we too look back in faith to a Savior who has already come, who has lived a sinless life and died on a cross and rose victoriously over sin and death. He has conquered sin and death and the curse and the fall once and for all. And by his blood alone, relationship with God is restored for those who believe in him. And although we're not back to paradise yet, although we are still longing to be with him again in paradise, as we wait, as we are being sanctified and restored into his likeness each and every day, we live with this hope that he is coming again. And we rest in the goodness of his word and we walk in obedience to his good commands until he returns. And so, dear friend, in these crazy, weird, strange days that we live in, do not lose heart. 
Do not grow weary in living for your master. Be a herald of the gospel. Be a herald of the law. Be a herald of the goodness of our God to a lost and dying world around us. Let's pray.